John 12, verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And so they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. This is God's holy, inerrant, inspired, and authoritative word. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given it to us for us to profit from, to learn from. We thank you that we have access to it these many years after these events happened. And we have access to it because it is indeed of profit for us. It is indeed adequate for us. We pray that your spirit would now do his work of of applying this word to our hearts. We pray this in his name. Amen. So, like I said, we've been walking with John, this disciple of Jesus. John, likely the youngest disciple of Jesus, but part of the twelve, in his retelling of the ministry of Jesus. And, and now we're into the last week of Jesus' earthly life. The, the crucifixion would happen during Passover. And that first verse of chapter 12 happened six days before that. So this is likely Saturday night, and the very next event that we'll read about and we'll talk about next week, the triumphal entry, is on Sunday. And by that coming Friday, five or six days later, Jesus would be crucified. Now, you might be thinking as we look at John, and as you've maybe paged ahead and and looked at how much is left, that we're just over halfway into John's gospel. And, and that's exactly right. Pretty much the whole last half of John happens during this last week of Jesus' life and ministry. John dedicates half of his gospel to these events. That, that in itself tells us how important these events, the events of this week, are. Jesus has just performed... Before this, his greatest miracle to date, raising Lazarus from the dead. And that miracle alerts us all to the purpose of Jesus' coming. His words alert us to that purpose. He's already had uh, seven I am statements that have, have uh, said to the people that are listening that he is God didn't use those exact words, but by using those I am statements, I am the door, I am the, shep- the good shepherd, uh, I am the way, the truth, and the life, those affirm his, his, the fact that he is indeed not just a man, but is God 
as well. But then he's also performed seven signs up to this, the greatest of which, of course, is the raising of a dead man. And that alerts us to the purpose of his coming. Jesus did not ultimately come to show off his earthly miracle power. Jesus came came to bring spiritually dead people to eternal life. That was his purpose for coming, that they might have life. By this point, a few people were starting to understand that about Jesus. They started to understand that there was much more to Jesus than a man that could do amazing tricks. We meet one person like that here at this dinner party for Jesus, a lady by the name of Mary, who performs an amazing act showing how she has come to honor Jesus and to see him as valuable. Others might also be starting to understand who he really is, but they respond differently than Mary did. In fact, the very opposite way. Rather than honor Jesus, they set out to get rid of Jesus. They see him as a, as a threat to their interests and to their goals in life. If there's anything that we've learned up to this point, it's that Jesus evokes these kinds of polar opposite reactions. Jesus polarizes people. They either accept him or they reject him. They either want to honor him or they want to shame him. They either love him or hate him. They either believe him or they don't believe him. They either follow him or they plot to kill him. There's no third way. There's no landing somewhere in the middle. There's no staying neutral. There's no undecided option. As we come to chapter 12, these responses are reaching fever pitch. At this point, it seems like the the rejection-type responses are actually winning the day. They're getting more and more pronounced and more and more decisive. In fact, the Jewish authorities have already determined that Jesus must die. Look back at chapter 11, verse 53. From that day on, they made plans to put him to death. And like I said last week, his sentence has already been handed down. But even though these negative responses to Jesus seem to be winning the day, they are definitely not accomplishing their purpose. Their purpose for getting rid of Jesus was to make sure that he didn't gain a following. That's exactly what was going on. They, they saw that his miracles and his preaching was increasing his popularity among the crowds. And so they got to thinking that the best thing that they ought to do at this point was to silence the leader of that uprising. But we find out again here that their efforts to silence him are actually having the very opposite effect. The life and message of Jesus is unstoppable. And this is so interesting. Right after he raises Lazarus in in chapter 11, verse 45, just uh, let your eyes land back there for a minute. Chapter 11, verse 45, it says, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had seen what he did, believed in him. And here at the end of this section, as they again try and try to silence, let's just call it this Jesus thing, look at verse 11 of chapter 12. Many of the Jews, starts out the same way, were going away and believing in Jesus. So the more the opposition increased, the more the message of, and the following of Jesus was growing. Now, I'm not sure 
if there's a lot of this in Alberta, but back in Manitoba where I grew up, you were always careful about going into a bush because there was a chance that you might brush up against a plant, this plant that had, as our parents always told us, had three shiny leaves, this plant that's called poison ivy. And if your skin came into contact with that plant, it would cause a blistery and very itchy rash. And I know that from experience. But the thing about poison ivy, once you had it, is that if you scratched it, say it, would, say it was on your shins and then you touched another part of your body with those same fingers that you scratched your shins with, that rash would spread. It's the same with other rashes, of course, chicken pox or other kinds of rashes. Our natural inclination when we have an itch is to scratch it. And you think that, logically thinking now, if you scratch it, it'll just go away. But when we try to eliminate the itch by scratching it, that scratching only serves to spread the rash. Well, that's what it was like for, these, for this Jesus thing that was going on over there. The more they tried to eliminate Jesus, the more it seemed like people were believing in him. And even after they did succeed seemingly in silencing Jesus, his following just kept spreading, even to this very day. That pattern has not stopped. Unbelievers will keep trying to silence the message of Jesus, but it just keeps spreading. Maybe not normally in mass uprisings or mass revivals, but, but slowly, sometimes imperceptibly, quietly, into all tribes and tongues and nations. After Jesus died, other followers were silenced. Stephen was the first martyr, James, one of the disciples, Peter, and others throughout history, actually, are killed for following Christ. But the message of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus, is unstoppable. Today, people try, and, people try to silence the gospel in other ways by, by sometimes marginalizing its followers or by trying to, to say those who follow the message of Jesus or believe the message of Jesus are, are somehow crazy. They try to promote and, 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 and mainstream a, a Bible-opposing agenda. We see that in our country. And while there is a place to voice our objections, and we have, we need not fear, we need not ever fear that unbelief will ultimately win the day. It might seem to be making headway sometimes, but the message of Jesus will not be silenced. Well, let's take a look at this passage and two efforts at trying to stop this Jesus movement that was happening there around Jerusalem at the start of this last week of Jesus' earthly life. And then one shining example of loyalty. One is an example of sacrifice. Two are examples of how self-interest can guide our thinking. The two efforts to stop Jesus are are here cast in the shadows of Mary's act of anointing Jesus. And it's Mary's example that the gospel writers remember. Both Matthew and Mark also record this story, and they add these words from Jesus. Wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Mary's example of loyalty and devotion to Jesus is what will be remembered and talked about 
We're talking about it here today. The efforts to stop Jesus will also be retold, as we're doing today, but only as tragic examples of people who had every opportunity to honor Jesus, yet went the total the other direction and rejected him. These two efforts are remembered as puzzling, perplexing, confusing examples of people who are in the presence of and hearing of Jesus' words. Jesus is right there with them. They had the advantage of hearing Jesus face to face, yet they still rejected him. But these examples are puzzling and maybe confusing because they make us wonder why. Why, when encountering the greatest news for humankind ever presented, will people still reject it? Why do people today, maybe even some of our loved ones, reject this wonderful offer of atonement and forgiveness and eternal life that Jesus offers? Well, let's look and see and find some of the answers here in this text. Let's, let's start by setting the context for this scene here again in John chapter 12. I have a little bit already, but let's do that a little bit more. We already know again that this is six days before Passover. Like I said, it's the Saturday before Good Friday. At the end of chapter 11, after they had made plans to put Jesus to death and were, were actively uh, looking for him in order to arrest him, Jesus had gone away to another town to spend time with his disciples, a town by the name of Ephraim. And, and you just have to know here that it was not so much that Jesus was on the run and trying to, uh, trying to escape. It was, it was more that he was on a schedule, a divine schedule set by God the Father, and he knew that it was not yet his time. We know that he wasn't on the run or in hiding because now he comes down to Bethany. He's actually uh, geographically moving back closer to Jerusalem, not farther away. And in Bethany, they throw a dinner party to honor Jesus, probably as a, as a kind of dinner to celebrate what had happened with Lazarus. At this dinner, we've got a number of characters. We've got Jesus and Lazarus. We've got Mary and Martha, along with the 12 disciples. And the Gospels in Matthew and Mark add that this dinner happens at the house of someone called Simon the leper. Maybe someone that Jesus had healed for, from leprosy. If he still had leprosy, they wouldn't be meeting at that house. So some, probably someone that was part of Jesus' healing ministry. And so he's there, and maybe others as well. It says here that Lazarus was one of those reclining with Jesus at the table. In those days, when they have a, had a dinner party, they usually had a, had, had a very low table, maybe a, six inches to a foot off the ground, and, and it usually be in a U-shape. And, and people, when they ate, would lean toward, in toward the table, with, usually with like one elbow on the ground and their head uh, resting in, in their hand. And, and they'd eat then with the other hand. That's what they meant by reclining. And so their heads would be in close to the table and their bodies would go out away from the table. Got that picture? That's sort of the scene here. And so they're all there, and Mary moves into action. She's not one of those reclining around the table, but she's sort of around the periphery. And remember, Mary and Martha were the two sisters of Lazarus. They were the two, chapter 11, that made sure that Jesus had heard that their brother was very sick and had told them to come down to Bethany in the first place. They also show up in Luke 10, 
where it talks about Martha being busy serving Jesus while Mary is found sitting at Jesus' feet listening to him teach. That gives us an insight to these two sisters, what they're like, what kind of character they have. Martha loves to serve. Mary is maybe a little less hands-on and more reflective, probably driven a little bit more by, by emotional attachment. It's the same in this scene. We just read two words here about Martha. Martha served. Doing a good thing. Doing a necessary thing. Mary, however, takes this opportunity to show her love and her loyalty to Jesus. And what we see that Mary does here is actually an enormously generous display of love. Look again at verse 3. Mary, therefore took a pound of expensive ointment, and a pound in those days, that, that, the word's probably a measure of about 12 to 13 ounces, a little less than, than our pound. But Mary took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now, we don't know a lot about the particular product that she used, Likely some kind of essential oil. I know that because it says it's an expensive oil. But some say it was a, a, a perfume that came from a plant from way over in India. So likely the fact that it came from so far is, is one of the reasons it was expensive. But we do know that she used a lot. And that it was worth a lot of money. And she busts open that perfume and anoints the feet of Jesus. She probably actually spread it over his head and his whole body, but John here emphasizes the feet. And he does that for a reason, I think. Back in chapter 11, verse 32, after Lazarus dies, it says, Mary came to where Jesus was and fell at his feet. Or in Luke chapter 10, the passage I already referred to, Mary sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. To, to sit at someone's feet was, was a bit of a euphemism, was a picture of wanting to learn from someone. A picture of being teachable. And in many ways, a picture of humility. That's Mary. And here we meet her again. She's anointing the feet of Jesus. And not only that, it adds that she wiped his feet with her hair. His feet with her hair. Even those words highlight the, the, the sacrificial and, and costly element of Mary's act. Ladies back then wouldn't normally let down their hair in public. If they did, they were seen to be indecent or immoral. But Mary, at this point, didn't care what people thought. She didn't care about being shamed. She just cared to honor Jesus and to, to show her love and her devotion for her Lord in, a, in some kind of a tangible way. She longed to be at Jesus' feet. And Mary is memorialized for this extravagant act of love. I love that last line. The, the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Of, you know, of course it was. It was on Jesus' feet and over his whole body, and it was in Mary's hair. The fragrance is everywhere. It fills the room. It's kind of like, putting vapor rub on somebody, right? You smell it everywhere. 
And that fragrance spills out into history as this story is placed in the pages of God's holy word, which we have here in 2018. We're still imagining the fragrance that fills that room from this wonderful act of loyalty and love. This is an example for us of a way to respond to Jesus, of a proper response to Jesus. Jesus is not here. He's not present with us, but we have access to him through his life and, 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 and through his word, through his teaching. And, and it's through his death and burial and resurrection that we have access to the Father. Do you want to be at the feet of Jesus? Is, is he worth your highest honor? Is he worth your deepest affection? Will you spend yourself on him? Not counting your reputation in the eyes of the world as having any worth in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ. This is Mary. She loved her Lord. She loved Christ. But after this amazing act in that house, around that table, we're confronted all of a sudden with a voice of protest. And it doesn't come from an uninvited guest. It comes from one of those around the table. The very next words there in verse 4 are, start with the word, but. An amazing act by Mary, in many ways a a natural expected response to the Savior of the world, to her Savior, but. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples who was about to betray him, said. I looked at that, I thought, why is there a but here? You'd think you'd read something like, everyone praised Mary's generous act and joined in worshiping Jesus. But that's not what we read. We read, but Judas. And here's our puzzle again. For some strange reason, people do not want to cast their lot with Jesus. And so Judas represents one more example of unbelief. We might say one more almost unbelievable example of unbelief. One more unbelievable example of unbelief. He actually doesn't approve of her act. He sees it as a waste. If she wasn't going to keep it, why not get some money from it? Of course, that suggestion would sound too self-serving, and so Judas says, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He's trying to make it sound like he cares for the poor. A bit of a philanthropist. But in the very next verse, John, writing after the fact, outs Judas' motives and exposes him as a hypocrite and a liar and a thief. Verse 6, he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into that bag. So he was likely the treasurer, and the disciples had a a place where they collected money that was given to them for for their needs and maybe to, to help the poor as well. But Judas helped himself to it here and there. Now, just to give Judas a little bit of the benefit of the doubt and to maybe explain why he became a follower of Jesus, he may have been initially swayed by false hopes. He may have thought, like a lot of people did in that day, that the Messiah was going to be the guy that was to be the great Jewish hope, 
who would overthrow the Romans and become the leader of the nation of Israel. As it was starting to become obvious that Jesus was not going to be that guy, Judas might have thought, well, I may as well get something out of this failed venture. Make a few bucks, denarius, while I'm at it, before I, I get out of here. At the surface, though, we can see what drove Judas and what led him to ultimately commit the worst act of betrayal in history. He was driven by power and money. Ultimately, he was driven by self-interest. A little later in Matthew's account, Jesus actually says about Judas what might be the most, the most damning thing that can be said another, uh, about another human, about another person created in God's image. He says it would, it would have been better for that man if he had not been born. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. But here, in the response of Judas, we see why some people will not believe in Jesus. For, for Mary, remember, it didn't matter what people would think. Jesus was there, and, and she gave up everything. She gave up even her most precious and prized possession. She probably didn't have much. She was probably in that first group that, that John described. And she gave it all up. She gave her most precious and prized possession to anoint the one who would die for her sins. Judas could not get past the fact that her most prized possession could have been used to get some easy money. Ultimately, that desire led him to sell out on Jesus himself. For what? For 30 pieces of silver. Judas did eventually get his money. But he lost his soul. He was the first illustration of Jesus' prophetic and tragic question, what shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? Why don't some people believe? Here's one reason why. They're motivated more by self-interest and by temporary earthly gain than by something that profits their soul for eternity. For some reason, they can't see past the treasures of Egypt. They can't see past the treasures of this world. It's sad and it's tragic. But let's not be too fast to look outside ourselves and think, you know, boy, if only so-and-so could hear this, as we often do, as I often did when I was sitting in church. It would be great and -and so-and-so was here. We can all easily fall into that trap. The world and its lusts are very enticing. And the lusts of the world always seem to be, they always seem to be paraded and marched in front of our eyes saying, take me, don't they? Jesus, on the other hand, is seemingly off the scene and far away. But beware. Satan loves to distract us. With, as he talks about in Matthew 13 in the parable, the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. We need to strain and to strive to see riches as deceitful, to see them as they are, and, that, and, and to see the cares of the world as empty. And we need to strain and to strive to see Jesus as sufficient. Do we believe that? challenge has been put to us already today. The best way to do that is to be with Jesus, like Mary, at his feet, learning from him, worshiping him. And we have the means of doing that through the word and through the church. Jesus rebukes Judas, and he teaches them that Mary has the right priorities. 
Leave her alone, he says. The poor you always have with you. It's not discounting the, to, the, the poor, but he's saying that the poor will always be there to give to, but you do not always have me. So, we have the unbelief of Judas, a, je- a dejected follower who tries to stop the, this Jesus thing from continuing. And secondly, we have the chief priests down in verses 9 to 11. And so while Judas, we might describe him as a dejected follower, these are the threatened power seekers. We already met them at the end of chapter 11. They're the ones that are scared that if people follow Jesus, they'll lose their power and they'll use their, 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 this, this sort of independence that they've temporarily been granted by the Romans there in Jerusalem. And so on the suggestion of the high priest, they decide that it's better that Jesus die than the whole nation. That Jesus be eliminated rather than the whole nation be taken over. We called their tactic last week a kind of substitution. One man for the people. And of course we find out that that actually matches God's plan. Unknowingly. Except what they meant for evil, God would mean for the eternal good of all those that believe. But chapter 11 ends with the chief priests giving orders... That if anyone sees Jesus, they should turn him in. See Christ around the countryside, make sure you let us know so that we can arrest him. But here in chapter 12, it turns out that the crowd actually sees Jesus, but doesn't turn him in. They're fascinated by him. And they want to get in and see him. And there's a double bonus here. Lazarus is there too. Both the guy that raised the dead man and the former dead man himself. So verse 9 says, when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came. Now, if they really took the orders of the chief priests seriously, they should say, when the large crowd learned that Jesus was there, they let the chief priests know so that they would arrest him. But they don't. The chief priests' best laid plans don't work. Jesus just keeps growing in popularity. Now, you might think that at this point they'd give in and and maybe believe in Jesus themselves. But we all know that hard hearts don't soften that quickly or that easily. And so the chief priests actually doubled down on their murderous plot. Verse 10, so the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. What are they doing here? They've decided to get rid of any and all evidence of this miracle. They want to silence the whole thing. Also, they can maintain their power. They want to kill both Jesus and Lazarus. Their unbelief and their hard hearts will stop at nothing. Not even double murder. Both Judas and the chief priests fail to believe in Jesus because of self-interest. It's interesting that Judas and the chief priests actually join forces just a couple of days later when Jesus does get arrested. In John 18, verse 3, it says, So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there, went to a garden where they'd arrest him. Well, here in chapter 12, Judas and the chief priests are placed in contrast with Mary, the one who laid aside her reputation, who laid aside any self-interest, and who was willing to give her best in worship of her Lord. But these two efforts would have none of that. 
They were motiv motivated by, like I said, by self-preservation and by self-gain. They were willing to kill the one who would give life. Think about that. They were willing to kill the one who would give life, the one who did give life to Lazarus, and the one who would willingly die so that people would believe on him and could gain eternal life. But just like that poison ivy, the more they tried to get rid of it, the more people believed. The more the message of Jesus spread and scattered. The word of Jesus, the message of the gospel, is unstoppable and uncontainable. No one need worry about that. Even in our turbulent times, these times that we're facing, when some of our rights and freedoms are, are being threatened to be taken away, when it again seems that the message of Jesus is in peril of being silenced and marginalized, we, we don't really need to fret that those efforts will be successful. God will see to it that the good news of Jesus Christ will spread and flourish. But where we can have a degree of anxiety is with individuals who are confronted with this message. If you're here today, you have been confronted with the life of Jesus once again. And that brings you to a point where you being, you're being confronted with the option of whether to believe him or to reject him. Jesus, for his part, came to give life. He even willingly gave up his own life so that you could have eternal life through him. And so my encouragement to you is simply to repent and believe the gospel and the promises that you will have life. Many of us, though, that are here today ache for loved ones who, who seem to love their own lives and seem to, to want to hang on to their independence rather than to follow Jesus. My encouragement for you is to just keep praying that their hearts would be softened. God can do that work. God the Spirit can open their eyes so that they see Christ for who he is. Let's keep praying that, that their hearts would be softened and to the point that they would behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And for us who are the church, who are the body of Christ... Mary gives us an example of one who sat at the feet of Jesus, and when the opportunity came, she used it to honor him and to give him her best, and even in God's providence to anoint him for his burial. And as she worshipped, the house was filled with the fragrance of the per perfume. I pray that our thoughts of Christ and our giving ourselves to Christ and our sitting at the feet of Jesus, that that perfume, as it were, would fill the church with, with worship, and that that fragrance would then spread in, into our families and into the community and into every place that we go so that others would come to believe in him. Listen to these words from 2 Corinthians 2, 14 to 16 as I close. 2 Corinthians 2, 14 to 16. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Father, we pray that that we would follow in the example of Mary. 
and that we would spread the fragrance of the knowledge of you wherever we go. We're grateful for both your warning here in this passage and for your encouragement from these responses to Jesus. Help us to honor Christ with our words and as we've been challenged today with our gifts and also with our worship. Thank you for helping us see again that your truth and your gospel marches on and and spreads out. Help us take comfort and strength from that fact. And and we pray that that truth would would serve to embolden us and to uh, give us the courage to, to witness for you. Pray that you would strengthen us for that task. Your word says in your last commission, Jesus' last commission to us, and lo, you are with us always as we do that. We thank you for that promise of your presence, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.